This podcast is brought to you by The Empowerment Project. Research proves that empowerment self-defense training makes you safer, period. I want you to have a great self-defense toolkit so you can create strong boundaries, speak with confidence, and take up all the space that you deserve in the world. We'll hear stories from survivors and find out what worked for them and why. We'll interview leaders in the field and talk about tips, concepts, and really easy things that you could do to make yourself safer and interrupt the cycle of violence. I've taught self-defense classes for over 30 years, and I promise to teach you everything I know. Ultimately, I'm going to want you to get some in-person training, but a great empowerment self-defense class is more than just the physical skills. The list of things I want to teach you is endless, so let's get to it. My name is Sylvia Smart, and welcome to The Empowerment Project. Hey, everybody, and welcome back. Jennifer Hirsch is a professor of sociomedical sciences at Columbia Mailman School of Public Health. Seamus Kahn is a professor of sociology at Columbia, and together they are co-authors of a book that I want you to read. It's called Sexual Citizens, a Landmark Study of Sex, Power, and Assault on Campus. It's published, by the way, by W.W. W. Norton. That work was realized as part of Columbia's Sexual Health Initiative to Foster Transformation, also called SHIFT, which was co-directed by Jennifer and clinical psychologist Claude Ann Mellons, and which was profiled in The New Yorker in February of 2018. A recent review in Science described sexual citizens as, quote, profoundly eye-opening. And I am thrilled and honored to welcome Jennifer to the Empowerment Podcast by Naga. Welcome, Jennifer. And before we get started, I just want to mention that to my listeners, that our discussion of sexual citizens is going to include descriptions of actual sexual assaults as the students experience them. And we've talked about this before, but this material can be really hard to hear, especially for those of you who are survivors. So I want you to remember that you can stop listening anytime and take a break or take a deep breath. Remember that we have some grounding things that we've talked about doing in the past, like get up, go for a walk, or call a friend. If these stories are hard for you to hear, you can always come back and finish the podcast later. What's more, most important here is you taking care of yourself. That said, if something comes up for you and you need to talk, the National Sexual Assault Hotline number is 1-800-656-4673. Okay, with that said, take a deep breath, and we're going to get started talking with Jennifer about her book, Sexual Citizens. Jennifer, this whole amazing project slash book started with your shift study, so let's use that as our jumping off point. Can you Tell us about that study and how that led you to writing this book. Yeah, so cast your mind back in time to the summer of 2014. Um, seems like a unimaginably long time ago. Um, it, it, there was a lot of attention 
to campus sexual assault. Um, Columbia was just joining a multi-campus survey to um, do a better job of measuring rates of assault among graduates and undergraduate students. Um, that movie, The Hunting Ground, I think, came out around that time. And so there, there was the folk, the conversation was focused on two things. It was focused on improving adjudication processes um, in a way that was driven, um, you know, by a combination of student survivor activists and the federal government. Um, and that work is really, really important. And it is not our focus um, in our research. And there was an idea circulating of campuses as, as hunting grounds, of sort of the people who assault people as um, sociopathic perpetrators. And, um, you know, any behavior, any experience that is that frequent a part of the college experience, you know, we found that women by the time, by senior year, a third of the women who took the survey had experienced some form of unwanted sexual contact. So it's it's hard to imagine that um, that that's only people who are intentionally setting out to hurt other people. And so, in shift, you know, I've spent my whole career thinking about social influences on sexual behavior. As I I joke, I was I was delighted to have this recorded in the New Yorker interview. Um, I've been, you know, the whole time working on going beyond uh, working one penis at a time in, in doing HIV prevention. And I wanted to apply that same optic to campus sexual assault and say, like, okay, let's take this as a predictable regularity of the campus experience. Let's understand how it is designed in to the campus experience, and then let's design it out. And so, in so that led to this large project with with Claude and Mellons that included two forms of survey research, the um, ethnographic research that the the book primarily draws on, and um, an ongoing collaboration with with university administrators. Um, and from the beginning, Seamus and I intended to write a book um, because it, I hope you're sitting down when I say this. Um, most research doesn't have that much impact on the world, right? You just like crank knowledge out and then it's ignored. And so um, our goal was to change the conversation about campus sexual assault and to reconfigure it from being seen as a campus problem to an everyone problem um, with a much more expansive vision of what prevention needs to look like. Your book is paradigm shifting in so many ways. And we're going to get to some of those ways. But first, who's your reader? Who's your audience? Who do you want reading your book? Um, everyone who knows how to read, really. I mean, <laughs> Me too. I um, want everyone who and, knows how to read to read your book. And you know what? If there's an audio book, so if you're not a strong reader, you can <laughs> listen to it. Um, it, it. No, but seriously, I you know, parents have been a big part of our readership because I think it's something that parents are so worried about, and not just about um, having children who are assaulted, but what they can do to keep their their children from assaulting other people, right? So, I, so in part, parents, um, young people themselves, certainly. I mean, it is, I think, a, an incredible 
uh, read for high school seniors headed off to college. Um, because, you know, for the way it pulls back the curtain on what it feels like to be a college student um, in all kinds of ways beyond um, sex and sexual assault. Um, and then, you know, all other concerned humans, our argument in sexual citizens is that um, it can't, it, like, if, if, if all of our prevention efforts are focused on campus, it's too late. Um, it doesn't mean that there's nothing campuses can do, but rather that there's a lot more that um, K through 12 educators can do and um, that, that families can do and that every institution that touches young people on their way to adulthood can do. And so we want all of those people, all the people who are in charge of those institutions um, to, to read it, as well as policymakers. I mean, I think policymakers have um, largely failed to respond to the very strong bipartisan public and parental support for comprehensive sexuality education. And the book provides a very strong argument for why we need to be doing better on that. You know, when you did your research and as you're writing your book, you talk about sexual assault, but that you also have this uh, term that comes up, unwanted sexual contact. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like, what's the difference and how did that play out in your understanding? of what is going on? Well, I mean, people who study sexual assault know that when you ask somebody, have you experienced sexual assault? Um, they may not answer because it's a very stigmatized concept. And so we, uh, you know, we had many students who we spoke with, both students who had been assaulted and students who had assaulted other people who described what they were doing as, as having sex. And so, um, with, and so we, we widen the lens out substantially from only looking at things that students themselves themselves are willing to label as assault. I mean, I'll give you an example. So, um, Karen was meeting up with her ex-boyfriend in the park. He, he was very distraught. His sister had just been diagnosed with a recurrence of cancer and he wanted, he said he wanted to talk and, you know, she still cared about him. And, um, so they met up in the park and, you know, the next thing, you know, he was kissing her and he pushed her up against a rock and she was totally befuddled. Like it was not at all what she had been expecting. Um, and she said, no, and his response to her saying no was to move her to the ground. And she recounted, like, she, was, she wasn't really laughing as she said it, but she recounted in a sort of befuddled way how she found dirt in her vagina afterwards. And she mused that maybe he had understood her saying no as not being comfortable against the rock. And so he moved her to the ground to be responsive to that. But she was very reluctant to label that as what it was, an assault. Yeah. Um, I get it. So for research purposes, it makes a lot of sense to couch terms in ways that people can hear so that you get information. That's kind of hard to hear. Um, I'm wondering, as you did your research, what did you find that surprised you? Were there 
it sounded, as I was reading your book, it sounded like there were a few things that surprised you. Could you talk about those? Um, so many things. So, I mean, I think a thing that will surprise readers um, is the complexity of the way that we present campus power relations. So I'll, let me tell you a story. I'll tell you a couple stories. But so um, what people think of as sort of the prototypical campus sexual assault, um, Lucy was a freshman. She had gone to boarding school and been very sheltered. She arrived on campus um, wanting to, to to make out with some boys and, and to eventually lose her virginity. That's In the book, we talk about sort of what sex is for using the the, the term sexual projects. And so Lucy's sexual project early in freshman year was, was just to, to do that, to eventually lose her virginity. And um, she was out at a bar during orientation week with one of the girls in her hall and they met some seniors and the seniors were buying them drinks. You know, even if you're, if you're 18, as long as you're a woman, it's easy to get into a bar in Morningside Heights. Um, and to Lucy, that attention from, you know, um, older men in a prestigious institution or fraternity felt thrilling. And so when Scott invited Lucy back to his fraternity, she was, you know, sure. They stumbled up Amsterdam Avenue in the warm summer night. Um, he invited her in, her phone was ringing and it turned out to be her friend, Nancy, who had had that bystander intervention and wanted to catch up with her to keep her friend safe. And so they waited. Um, eventually they go up the stairs into the fraternity. So just like pause to think about it. You have two freshmen, their first week on campus, the prime directive that first week is to not do anything that's embarrassing. Right. So like this feels like they're, they're just, they're like, they're, they're like getting with the groove. They're, they're having like the college experience. And um, he asked them if they want to drink. Uh, fraternities are not allowed to serve hard alcohol, but doesn't mean they don't serve it. It just means they keep it upstairs. So then they go up to the second floor in a building where he lives, where he's surrounded by his friends. Um, Nancy almost immediately passes out. Scott asks Lucy if she wants to go up to his room. And she did, you know, they were making out on the stairway. She, they went up to his room. She thought they were just going to make out. And, um, then in his room, um, he starts to take off her pants and she said, no, she said, stop, don't. To which he says, it's okay. And then he raped her. And I mean, it's an awful story. I feel awful every time I, I, tell it. And in the book, we talk about the aftermath as well, but just hold that moment. Like your hot take might be Scott is a terrible person. And certainly unquestionably what Scott did was a terrible thing. He ignored Lucy saying no. And she was then, you know, frozen and just you know, as she described, she just went along with it because she didn't know what else to do in that moment. But he wasn't, he was it's not that, that power disparity between them is not just that he was a man. It's that he was older than she was, that he was in a space that he controlled, that he had much more sexual experience than she did, that he was much more used to drinking alcohol than she was. He was also bigger, you know, probably 40 pounds and six inches taller. Um, and so, 
in sexual citizens, we look at both those sort of situational power dynamics as well as um, how inequalities related to race or um, economic precarity uh, produce vulnerability for students. So, so we take this sort of what's obvious to everyone, which is that gender is part of understanding sexual assault, and we build on that with what I think is increasingly commonly understood as an intersexual analysis that looks at the multiple forms of power that shape vulnerability to assault or to, to being assaulted or to assaulting someone. That story that you just told demonstrates these three powerful paradigm-shifting concepts that you start to unravel and really focus on in your book. Sexual citizenship, sexual projects, and sexual geographies. So can you speak to each one of these things, each one of these three concepts, and show us how they come together on a college campus to create a context which is so ripe for sexual assault? Yeah, I mean, I think that the story contains all three concepts. So sexual citizenship is the idea that people have the right to choose their own sexual experiences, but that they need to understand that other people have those same rights, that when they are having sex with people, they are actually people who have the right to sexual self-determination. And, you know, in that interaction, Scott so clearly failed to recognize Lucy's sexual citizenship. Um, And I think that that's characteristic of many heterosexual interactions, that that men are socialized to be very attentive to their own sexual citizenship and um, frequently inattentive to women's sexual citizenship. Um, And uh, women are socialized to be less attentive to their own sexual citizenship and much more concerned about men and their needs for pleasure. Doesn't mean all women. Um, and those are, those are things that we could do better at. Um, so that's sexual citizenship. Sexual projects is, is, um, the question of what sex is for, which you might think is absurd since like, of course, sex is for pleasure or for having babies, but you know, none of the students that we spoke with were interested in having babies. And, a lot of the sex that they described was not very pleasurable. And so by, by examining um, what they were trying to accomplish through sex, we get insight into um, what pushes people into particular sexual situations. And the point is not that there is a right sexual project and a wrong sexual project. We're we're sort of agnostic about that. I mean, with my own kids, fine. I have like a particular point of view about what kinds of sexual relationships I want them involved in. But as a scientist, you know, live your best life. And, and so, you know, we, we heard from students about sex that was about accruing experience. So like literally finding someone freshman week and just agreeing to lose their virginity together to get it over with. Um, sex that is for prestige in terms of like, finding a partner who is a high-status partner. Um, Sex that is about figuring out who you are in terms of your sexual identity. Um, Sometimes sex that is um, about expressing care for another person. Um, And sometimes, yeah, sex can also be pleasurable. Um, But sex that is about, it's not as if there's one project 
that protects you from assault. You know, I always think about the story of Adam, and obviously all these these stories are pseudonyms, um, who was not out to his parents when he was growing up. He grew up in a pretty conservative Midwestern family. And he was so excited to get to New York and like the whole gay scene and campus. Columbia has historically been a very queer-friendly campus. Um, and But he got tired pretty quickly of Grindr and men who would, you know, seem very interested in him and then just ghost him after they'd had sex. And so he was really, really excited to have a boyfriend. And... Uh, you know, he described how how grounding and special it felt to have sex with someone you cared about. And, but he also told us a story about a time when his boyfriend came back to his room drunk and in Adam's words, basically raped me, right? And so he he didn't want to tell any of his friends about it. And he didn't even, he was reluctant obviously to label it assault because he was very invested in the relationship. And so he was willing to put up with sex. He did not want, did not enjoy and did not consent to because his sexual project involved having sex as a, as a way to maintain the relationship. It wasn't that he never wanted to have sex, but he wasn't willing to say in that instance, you know what, that was really not okay. Um, so that sexual citizenship and sexual projects and then sexual geographies, you know, think about that space where Lucy was on the third floor of that building that she'd never been in in the first week of her freshman year. Um, that's a choice that campuses make to provide better housing to older students. And it's a choice that ends up funneling younger students into spaces controlled by older students, both for socializing and for sex. And so once you, you see that, you can think about, okay, how can we modify campus spaces to build other choices into students' lives? I mean, and one great sort of concrete example of that is um, the vice president for, for housing and dining, after being in conversation with us about the shift um, findings decided to keep one of the dining halls open all night so that students, you know, when the bars and the par- parties shut down at four in the morning, students would have someplace else to go to just be together. And the point is not that like 4 a.m. French fries are going to prevent every sexual assault, but just by expanding the range of options, that is the classic public health approach is thinking about how we can create an environment in which it's easier for people to act in ways that they don't hurt each other, as opposed to just yakking at people not to assault each other. So cool. Like such a great, again, I say this word, these two words, paradigm shifting. It's just a great big view how you look at your findings, which are so deep and so rich. And you talk about the role of power in sexual assault and as an empowerment self-defense teacher, we do too. We're all socialized beings and it's important to name the power dynamics that play out in school, at work, with our families, at church, for example. There are power dynamics that come with gender, age, roles. So, If you're my boss or my teacher or my coach, you have power over me. Could you please speak about what you found in power dynamics, the the way you discovered 
race, sexual orientation, gender identities, disability, and other social identities, and how they can influence a person's vulnerability to sexual assault. And on that same, in that same context, what you found out about how youth who have marginalized identities experience power and sexual citizenship differently. So it's kind of like a big question, but could you talk about that a little bit? Sure, I could talk about parts of it. I feel like to like the comprehensive answer is is in the whole book. But um, yeah, everyone has to read the book, by the way. Um, but like, give us a tickler of your understanding. Yeah. So, um, you know, we spoke with sixteen black women as part of the hundred and fifty one interviews that we did, which was only part of a data collection. It also involved, you know, hundreds of hours of. Um, spending of our, our research team spending time alongside students, alongside students as they live their daily lives. Um, but so every single one of the black women that we spoke with had experienced unwanted sexual touching. Every single one, and that's about racism. That's not about you know getting a consent training on the first week of school. Um, that's about the systematic devaluing of black women's bodies in America. And so uh, that's just one of the power dynamics that we take on. We also, um, you know, queer students consistently have been shown to have the highest rates of experiencing sexual assault on campus. And I think about one student who um, used they and them pronouns, who described their first assault as happening even before they got onto campus. They um, were not out to their family, um, but they had joined a summer theater program, which was the first queer space that they were in. And they described it as like initially a magical experience, finding a place where there were other people like them. Um, and so Jordan was enchanted to be in that space. And I think she said it was, they said, it was my first seeing of queerness. And so that feeling of recognition and community was very powerful. And in that space, they were assaulted by an older gay man um, who it, it acted in a predatory way. They were drunk. Um, uh, they were inexperienced. Um, and they just wanted to fit in. Pause to think about Jordan's environment, right? If they had been able to be out to their parents or if they had gone to a school that had a gay-straight alliance, it wouldn't have been their first seeing of queerness, right? So like that is that vulnerability that we see is a product, like with Black students, of an environment that systematically devalues people's experience, rendering them vulnerable um, to all kinds of aggressions, including sexual assault. And that's a great segue into my next question, which is about prevention, and preventing sexual assault in the first place. You talk about or identify four major opportunities, as well as how important it is that we educate young people in a new way. So yes, 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 yes. Can you talk about that? Prevention. So I mean, think about what a good job we do, what a, what a pretty good job we do um, with teaching driving in the United States. And I, I say this as a parent who, you know, my younger son is just trying to get his license. I gave him one lesson and he was like, let's never do that again. So it, I understand like, it is a hard thing to 
teach. And yet we have a whole system um, of making sure that young people can do a thing that is pretty dangerous, which is, you know, getting behind the weight wheel of a two-ton vehicle and get to where they're going without hurting anyone else. And, you know, so it's not just the parents teaching driving, it's the driver's ed, it's the road design, it's the seat belts, it's, it's, you know, somebody whose job it is to cut back the trees that obscure, you know, the signs that say yield ahead. So there's a whole system in place to ensure that, that young people can learn to drive. Um, we don't just let them grab the keys and walk out the door, like, and maybe they're even drunk and sort of turn or turn around and say, well, I hope it works out from them. And we're missing a parallel social effort, uh, in terms of teaching young people to, um, to, you know, they're all going to become sexually active at some point. And so not under my roof combined with the sexual diseases class is not a particularly effective, um, prevention approach. Um, and you know, the, the, the prevention work, that students get on campus, um, it's not bad to teach about consent, but it's a little bit like to just go with the driving metaphor. It's a little bit like teaching someone to drive by only teaching them about stop signs. Like in the same way that driving is a complicated behavior, so is sex. And so yes, to be a good driver, you need to stop at stop signs. But if that is all you know, you are not going to be a very good driver. Um, and, and so basically we are failing to teach young people to be good at sex and part of, and then so the sexual assault, like why should we be so surprised that they hurt each other? They really are figuring it out and in, in way, you know, in, and frequently unaware of the power that they wield. Um, so, so a major prevention opportunity is comprehensive sexuality education. One of the most powerful findings in the analysis of the survey data um, is that women who had received comprehensive sex ed before college that included training in how to say no to have to sex they didn't want to have, which is not abstinence only sex education. It's just sex education that includes skills development, like any good education. Um, those women were half as likely to be raped. That is a really big impact. That is as effective as the flu vaccine most years. That is the target effectiveness for the COVID vaccine. Um, so we essentially have a vaccine. It's not going to prevent all sexual assaults, but it would pre prevent a lot of them. And in other work that I've done, I've shown how um, comprehensive sex ed could conceptually be useful in, in the work that we really need to do, which is teaching people not to assault other people. Um, so there's comprehensive sex ed. Um, there's parents, you know, parents step up and in particular dads step up because there were zero dads in the stories that, that young people told us who had anything useful to say to their children about, um, sex or sexual assault. Um, but you know, from the minute you are potty training your kids, um, you are giving them messages about shame and sexuality um, that are, that can be very damaging or you're refraining from giving them those, those messages, you know, by, by using the, the anatomically correct words for body parts, you're indicating that these are things that it's okay to have. If you call it, you know, your hoo-ha and your pee-pee, that somehow suggests that like they're unmentionable in a way that, you know, you would never say like, 
you would never like use a nickname for elbows or necks because that would convey that elbows and necks are unbearably embarrassing. Um, so, you know, so many ways in which parenting, like our job as parents is to teach our children to move their bodies safely through the world. And there's some ways, like think about crossing the street, how much work goes into teaching your kid to cross the street safely. And so we're just, I think that parents are not doing a great job of the basic instruction around sex, about asserting their own sexual boundaries and respecting other people's sexual boundaries. But then again, you know, because not all parents are going to do it, I circle back to comprehensive sex education. And then there are many other institutions that touch young people's lives on the path to adulthood. Um, as, you know, as a person of faith, I think a lot about what religious institutions could be doing in terms of conveying values around sexuality and respect. Um, you know, it's a pretty low bar to say that the goal should be for sexual, for religious institutions to be places that are free from sexual harm. And like, yes, of course they should be. But if the whole point of religion is to teach people to live good lives, then thinking about how to have sex in a way that doesn't hurt other people, to me, that seems like, like a, a core part of that. Right. And then think about other institutions that young people engage with, whether it's, you know, camping or sports. So like all of those um, are places that could be opportunities for prevention. And if not, it's really a missed opportunity. And then once students get to campus, um, there is the, the question of space and how schools allocate space in a way that either amplifies or disrupts power inequalities. So, you know, in my, my dream campus, there are spaces for first-year students and queer students and students of color, um, not just to like host events like speaker series, but to have parties. And, um, the, you know, first-year students have singles so that they can have sex without having to go to someone else's room. I think that like the, sh the shared dorm room for, for freshmen is in some ways an erasure of their sexual citizenship. So I think that there are, there are lots of things that we can do beyond telling people to act better because telling people to act better, that's not our A game in public health. That's not where we excel. You mentioned, um, you mentioned how effective teaching the skill of saying no can be. You said something, the, you know, sociological term, I can't remember what it was, but something like it, it, it helped prevent sexual assault by like 50%? Is that how you described it? Yeah. So that was what's called refusal skills training. I don't know how similar or different that is from what you do, but I think that, you know, women, um, men are, are socialized to be very attentive to their own sexual needs and, and heterosexual women largely are not. And so I think just, and, and I, it's important to be clear, this is not about blaming people for being assaulted. Um, and yes, our work really requires us to do better in teaching people not to assault people. And at the same time, like, why should we only have one tool in our toolbox, right? Like, so if this is a thing that we have seen works, why not scale it up? I, I, I don't totally. understand. Totally. And if you know that it works, so there is this very large body of research 
by scholars like Jocelyn Hollander at the University of Oregon and Charlene Sen at the University of Windsor in Canada and Christine Gittich at Stanford and lots of others who have done studies showing the efficacy of empowerment self-defense training which decreases the likelihood of assault. So why are we not teaching that everywhere? Um, And again, it's not about blaming the victim. As everyone who listens to my podcast knows, no, we do not blame the victim. But if there are skills we can teach, why not? You know, as an empowerment self-defense instructor, sometimes, a lot of the times, we're teaching middle schoolers high schoolers. We're on college campuses and we're often the only ones talking about sex, relationships, power dynamics, and prevention. And we know that one of the best predictors of assault is a history of assault. And as empowerment self-defense instructors, this is what we do. We work actively to prevent that first assault and any other assaults as well. And it, as, as somebody who's kind of a geek in this area, I read your book kind of eagerly waiting for you to talk about teaching empowerment self-defense starting at a really young age. And I didn't see it. And I wondered... I know you've been like zooming around the country and talking to lots of people. Has anyone else mentioned like, where's the empowerment self-defense in your book? And whether the, whether you've heard it before me or not, what do you think about that? Like, do you have any thoughts about that? I mean, I think I see my job as a social scientist as um, providing a a very detailed and accurate social diagnosis of the problem. And at that point, I hand off to people who do intervention work. So like all the props and mad love to people who can build solutions based on our analysis. And um, yeah, it sounds like like the, the, I, I mean, there's so many stories I could tell of women who, did not feel like they had a right to say no. I mean, I think about Gwen, um, who, you know, as a freshman was very involved in the New York club scene. And um, you found it sort of glamorous. At the end of the night, she would go back to hotel rooms with, you know, like not very famous athletes or B-list actors. And she was clear she didn't want to have sex. So at the end of the night, she would, in her words, give them a blowjob just to get out of there. And she didn't, that was not an assault. I want to be very clear. Like, I'm not saying that was an assault, but it was a moment, it was a sexual interaction in which she didn't really consider what she wanted to do. And the men whom, to whom she was giving those blowjobs didn't really consider what she wanted to do. They were all, all about what they wanted to do. So, you know, in, in our terms, we would refer to that as, a failure of those men to recognize her sexual citizenship and a reflection of the ways in which our society doesn't cultivate women's sense of sexual citizenship, sense of clarity about what they do and don't want to do. And so, yeah, like it seems reasonable that any um, educational and skills building space that would help people cultivate that would be useful. You know, and at the same time, I think about Austin, I think whose story we opened the book with, um, he was 
in so many ways, a very engaging interview subject. He, the, the, the scene with Austin and his girlfriend on the 4th of July, it's the only really steamy sex scene in the book. We had to tone it down, actually. Um, you'll, you'll have to know. So um, I'm not going to describe that here. The listeners will have to read it on their own. But, um, you know, he, he had actually nicknames for the kinds of orgasms his girlfriend would have. And so he, and he really was committed later in his college years to being a good lover. And yet he told us a story about assaulting someone freshman year. And he was initially reluctant. He described it in the interview first as, as a weird thing. He had been shuffled off into someone's room. Um, his roommate wanted to be alone with his roommate's girlfriend. And so he got sent to the, the girlfriend's room where the girlfriend's roommate was in her bed. And she drunkenly mumbled, that she didn't want to do anything. And like, why should you even have to assert that you don't want to do anything when a stranger comes into your bedroom and you're asleep? But she was clear she didn't want to do anything. And yet he ignored that and got in bed with her and started to touch her body. And then he stopped himself. He was like, nah, this isn't the thing. And in telling us that story, he was sort of halting in the telling. And then later in the interview, we asked him what an assault was. And he was like, well, it's any kind of unwanted sexual touching of someone else's body. And then he paused and he was like, oh, fuck me. Like, and his eyes welled up with tears and he, he couldn't put together that he had assaulted with someone with the person he had grown to be. And so a part of our project in writing sexual citizens is a call to arms to do better at teaching particularly men to be more respectful to like to see and recognize and respect other people's sexual citizenship. And you know in the book we talk about queer assaults and we talk about women assaulting men. So obviously like it's not it's all not all about teaching men to do better, but a lot of assaults, like the majority are men assaulting women. And so I think a fundamental goal, and I say this, you know, both as a scientist and as a mother of two sons, is that we need to do better at teaching men to respect other people's sexual right to sexual self-determination. You are awesome. Your book is fantastic. Everyone's got to read it. And I I have loved this time talking with you. I love the stories you use to illustrate your concepts. And it's just so, so powerful, so paradigm shifting. And I really hope that listeners, all of you, take a moment, read this book, listen to the book, however you like, but dig in because it is it is rich and there is a lot to digest. So Jennifer, I know you have so much going on in your life, and I really just want to say for for me, for my listeners, thank you for spending time with me, for spending time with us, for telling us about your book, and um, for all the work that that you do. It's it's great. Thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, I feel like it's you know together we can change the conversation. That was why we wrote this book. You can't change the conversation unless you're in the conversation. And so, you know, we love to see the book. The paperback is coming out on January 26th. Um, and, you know, we, it's a perfect book club book. And, you know, it's being taught at schools across the country. There are, you know, many 
uh, institutions are starting to build prevention around it. And so, you know, it's, it's starting to catch fire. And I'm very grateful to you as um, providing us uh, with an opportunity to, to get the word out to, to more people. So I've also really, really enjoyed this conversation. Well, thanks, Jennifer, and uh, take really good care. Yes, you too. Take good care. It's affirmation time. This is how I end every self-defense class. It's kind of cheesy, but it's very cool, and this is how it works. We're going to do like a little call and response. If you can say this out loud, if you can repeat after me, do it, because it's important, I think, for you to hear your own voice. But if you can't, like if you're on a crowded subway or someplace where it's embarrassing, don't worry. You can also just say it inside your head. Okay, so I'm going to say something and you're going to repeat it after me. I'm going to give you space to do that. And at the end, we're going to say yes. Here we go. Repeat after me. I am worth protecting. I love myself. I belong. I deserve to take up space on planet Earth. I am a strong and powerful person. Yes! Woohoo! And hey, as a wrap up, will you do me a favor? Will you do all the things that you do when there's a podcast? Like, will you tell your friends? Will you subscribe? Will you come back each week? Communicate with me? Review this podcast? Like, all those things to help get more bandwidth, help more people find out about it. That would be super awesome. Take a deep breath. You are amazing. Thank you for being with me. See you next time.